life of David. Providence, the theological term providence, comes from the Latin prosidio. It means to see the affairs of life before they happen. Those of you that went through our study of Esther recently, remember this word, providence, to see the affairs of life before they happen. The theological meaning of the word, more specifically, is God's actions resulting from that foresight. So it's not simply, when we use the term theologically, it's not simply God's foreknowledge or to be able to see ahead of time. It's what God does as a result of being able to see ahead of time. That's providence. We might be able to predict with some accuracy what's going to happen tomorrow. We can't say for sure, but most of us could, if we were, if we were forced to, we could say, yes, tomorrow being a work day, the freeways in from, say, 7 o'clock to 9 o'clock in the morning are probably going to be busy. We could predict that. The weather people can say there's probably going to be rain or there's probably not going to be rain. They can give a percentage time. They could predict something like that. But we can't know for sure. Even though they may say there's only a 10% chance of rain tomorrow, there's no percent chance of rain. We've all seen times when they were surprised by something like that. And there turned out to be rain when there wasn't supposed to be. But God, on the other hand, foresees all things with certainty and then can act because of that foreknowledge, because of what he sees ahead of time. The theological doctrine of providence is that God both possesses and exercises absolute power over all the works of his hand. Now, he includes our free will into that. He includes free will into that. But tonight we're going to see God providentially working out circumstances to put David in the exact spot that he wants him to be. God's providence is at work in the life of David. David was not an ambitious man. Certainly the text doesn't present him as that way. He doesn't seek a position as king over Israel. He doesn't have Samuel anoint him, and then we don't see David in the text trying to figure out anything he could do to make sure he gets his way up to Gibeah, where Saul was, so that he can earn favor or he can manipulate his way into some sort of rulership position over Israel. David's just faithful. It's God that moves David where he's supposed to be providentially through these circumstances. It's God who chose David. David didn't choose to be king. God chose David to be king. It's providence that's going to allow an unnamed man in Saul's court to suggest David to the king. There's no indication at all that David slips this guy some money, say, hey, speak favorably, favorably of me if, if Saul needs some help. No, it's providence that did that. It's God who engineered this entire situation that we see in this chapter, the last part of this chapter, not David. And that's key. God is working it out for his own good, for his own purpose, but he's working it out providentially. Since we've already considered Psalm 23, Psalm 19, and Psalm 8, which we believe were written based upon experiences that David has as a young shepherd boy, we've considered those, I think now it's appropriate that we turn back to the narrative of David's life. That's going to be my plan in this study. We'll probably be in narrative for a little while now, and then we'll go back to some psalms when they become appropriate. But we studied these three psalms that told us something of the mindset of this younger man as he's tending his father's flock. Now, God's providence starts to work. The machine is starting to turn, and God's the one that's cranking the machine along, not David. That's so key. When we last left David, Samuel had just anointed him, and the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. You'll remember that from 1 Samuel chapter 16, 
verse 13. In verse 14, the first verse of our text tonight, the text is going to move to Saul, the current king of Israel. And this text is going to report that the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. So in verse 13, the Spirit of the Lord comes mightily upon David. In verse 14, the Spirit of the Lord leaves Saul. Some people might think, well, it's one for the other. He came upon David, so he has to leave Saul. The indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit is not a zero-sum game. If the Lord wanted to indwell, if the Holy Spirit wanted to indwell more than one person, he could have easily done that. But this is symbolic of a change in leadership. It's symbolic as the text describes David receiving the Spirit, and then the next verse, the Spirit leaving Saul. It tells us that some big change is about to happen in Israel. Then in verse 16, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit from the Lord terrorized him. So not only did God withdraw from Saul, but he sent an evil, that's the Hebrew term ra, R-A, he sent an evil spirit to torment him. There's been a lot of discussion about this, as you might can imagine, because that should probably raise a little bit of a red flag to you. Would God actually send, command a demon to go after the king of Israel. There are a couple different options that Old Testament theologians, scholars, have come up with. It could have been a spirit of discontent, as per Judges chapter 9, verse 23. The same terminology is used there. In other words, an oppressive feeling that would have come over him, not necessarily an entity of a demon. But the term raw could mean calamity, discontent, discomfort, all those things are included in that Hebrew term, raw. An evil spirit or a spirit of discontent was sent by the Lord to Saul. That happens to be the, the view that I take. But there are some people that think that God sent a demon to attack Saul and then not attack him, to attack him and then not attack him. And the third option is that God sent a demon to attack him permanently, to permanently indwell him. I don't think theologically that the second two of the options work quite as well as the first. I think what God does is he sends a spirit of discontent, spirit of great unhappiness on Saul. Either way, it's because of what Saul has done. It's not like God is tormenting Saul for grin. He's disciplining Saul at this point. But the text is very clear that the Lord is the one that sent this. There are fine people that hold that the Lord actually sent a demon. I'm not one of those. I'm not one of the fine people. <laughs> but I mean, I'm not... I'm not trying to say that, but I'm not, I don't hold that particular view. I think that it's more of a disconcerting spirit, a tormenting type of attitude that Saul had. In other words, he had no mental peace. There was no peace in his life. There's a New Testament passage that says, Stop worrying about anything, but in everything, by means of prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that passes all understanding. There's a certain peace that you can have in your soul that's beyond comprehension. We can hardly even communicate. But Paul will say the peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds. Saul at this point doesn't have that. We haven't studied it because we started with David. But previously Saul has rejected the Lord. So the Lord is going to reject Saul. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and an evil spirit, an attitude or a feeling of discontent from the Lord terrorized him. And that's an accurate understanding. It terrorized him. It wasn't just like he was having a bad day. He was having a really, really bad day. 
This is providential too, though. I guess God could have just set Saul aside, and that would have been the end of it. But he's punishing Saul. Verse 15, Saul's servants then said to him, Behold now, an evil spirit from God is terrorizing you. So other people recognized it. Not just Saul himself. The people around him certainly recognized it. Before we get into the evil spirit and what happens with regard to that, I think we need to spend just a moment, because we, we need to do it at some point in this study. This is as good a point as any. We need to discuss the idea of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament versus the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. They seem to be different things. And to do that, I'd like for you to hold your place here for just ever so short a time and turn over to John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. These are the two verses that are probably central to our discussion tonight. John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17. You'll recall as you're turning there that this is part of Jesus' upper room discourse. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may be with you forever. That is, the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it does not behold him or know him, but you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. The idea here is this is for believers and it's permanent. You see the verb back in verse 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. This is where we get in theology the idea that the New Testament believer, one of the places, that the New Testament believer is indwelt with the Holy Spirit. This is one of the primary reference that we learn that the New Testament believer is indwelt by the Holy Spirit permanently, permanently. So in John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17, Jesus indicates that following Pentecost, the Holy Spirit would begin a new ministry, a new ministry in believers that was unlike the Old Testament ministry of the Holy Spirit to believers. The emphasis of the passage is that the new ministry would be an indwelling in contrast to the Holy Spirit just being with them, he would physically indwell us. The Holy Spirit is a spirit, but the Holy Spirit still physically indwells you. And that it's going to be permanent. The promise of John chapter 14 pertains to all believers in this dispensation and is permanent. In the Old Testament, this same type of ministry was selective and temporary. In the New Testament, it's inclusive of every New, every New Testament believer, and it's permanent. Old Testament, it was selective. Only certain people were indwelt with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, and it was temporary. The reason this is going to be so important later on is because in Psalm 51, after his great sin with Bathsheba, one of the things that David is going to pray is, Lord, take not thy spirit from me. You may see now why. In preparation for that, you can see here why. Because David was, was very well aware that when Saul sinned and turned his back on God, God removed not only the kingship from him, but at the same time the Holy Spirit from him and tormented him with a ra, with an evil spirit or a spirit of discontent. David didn't want that. He knew that the sin that he had committed, committing adultery with, with Bathsheba, then murdering her husband, Uriah the Hittite, was probably every bit as worthy of death and the removal of the Holy Spirit than what David had done, than what Saul had done, rather. David's scared, and he doesn't want the Holy Spirit to be removed from him. Sometimes, 
in this dispensation, in the church age, you'll see believers pray this prayer. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. They get that from Psalm 51. But that's a different era. That's a different rule of life. It's a different age. For the church age believer, John chapter 14, verses 16 and 17 are the rule, the norm. The Holy Spirit indwelt some people in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit indwelt Joshua, for example, Numbers chapter 27, verse 18, and David in, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 12 through 13. The Holy Spirit came upon some people in the Old Testament. Charles Ryrie suggests that there's really no great distinction between indwelling and the idea of coming upon, except, and I quote him, except that the idea of coming upon seems to imply the temporary and transitory character of the spiritual relationship to the Old Testament saints. But they are essentially synonymous. When you see an Old Testament passage, the Holy Spirit came upon them, it is essentially synonymous to the Holy Spirit indwelt them. The Holy Spirit came upon or indwelt an Old Testament believer ordinarily for a specific task. In this case, it was Saul's leadership of Israel or David's leadership of Israel. It's also reasonable to assume that when that task had been carried out, the Spirit no longer indwelt that individual in the Old Testament. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Othanel to conquer the king of Mesopotamia in Judges chapter 3, verse 10. He came upon Gideon to defeat the Midianites in Judges chapter 6, verse 34. He came upon Jephthah to defeat the Ammonites in Judges chapter 11, verse 29. He came upon Samson to defeat, to defeat the Philistines in Judges chapter 14, verse 6. He came upon Balaam to prophesy concerning Israel in Numbers chapter 24, verse 2. If you look at each one of those passages and consider those, you see that those were all empowerments for some physical activity. In this case, most of them were for defeating an enemy. None of the people that I just mentioned, none of them were particularly spiritual as we use the word. In fact, some people think that Balaam was an unbeliever. I don't, but some people do. John Wolverd makes three observations concerning the indwelling of the Holy Spirit or the Spirit coming upon an Old Testament believer. First, the Spirit's indwelling in the life of a person has no evident relationship to their spirituality. Second, the spirit, because almost every example we have, the person was not a spiritual person. David's about the only one, Joshua too, that we can really say these were men of God that were indwelt with the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, I guess the way I would put this, would even indwell someone that we might call carnal to do a specific task. When that specific task was finished, the Holy Spirit left them. David seems to be the only one that I can find that had this permanence to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Second of Dr. Walbert's points, the, spirit was, the Spirit's indwelling was a sovereign working of God in the person to perform a specific task like delivering Israel from warfare or, or building the tabernacle. Third, the Spirit's indwelling was temporary. That's Old Testament. In this age, for you and for me, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is permanent. We shouldn't confuse it with the filling of the Holy Spirit. There's a difference between the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit and the filling ministry of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling is permanent. Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. The indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit provides ongoing enablement. But as we saw in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the filling of the Holy Spirit is something different. The filling of the Holy Spirit in this dispensation is temporary. You can have it at one moment and not have it the next moment. 
I hope you see, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit's permanent. The filling of the Holy Spirit that we just got through studying in Ephesians chapter 5 can come and go. Don't be drunk with wine, which is a waste of time, a waste of life. But on the other hand, be filled up by means of the Holy Spirit. Indwelling of the Holy Spirit is a gift. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a gift given to all believers without exception, and no conditions are attached to the gift except for faith in Christ. There are plenty of passages that speak of the Holy Spirit has been given to believers. The Greek term didomi, in these instances, means to bestow a gift. It would be the same thing as you giving someone a gift at their birthday or for Christmas time. It's a gift. You didn't deserve it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22 uses this word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 8, and 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. All use this word give when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Because it's a gift, there's nothing that you can do to earn it. Also, in this dispensation, there's nothing you can do to lose it. Because it was a gift, and it's promised to be permanent. So yes, even the carnal Corinthians had a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Even the carnal Corinthians had that. If you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit. Paul goes so far as to say in Romans chapter 8, verse 9, if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not a believer. So it's different, Old Testament and New Testament. The dynamic is different. Jude 19 refers to unbelievers as devoid of the Spirit. So there's a clear delineation in the New Testament. It's not there in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit is given at the point of salvation. A person not possessing the Holy Spirit is not a believer. And the Holy Spirit indwells carnal believers. Finally, the Holy Spirit indwells believers permanently. We need to remember that as we look at what David does with this sin of Bathsheba that will come up a few weeks from now. Why he's concerned. Because he doesn't want to happen to him what happened to Saul. And why we ought not to pray that prayer. Take not the Holy Spirit from me. God is not going to remove the Holy Spirit from you as a believer. He may discipline the heck out of you. He may still send a spirit of discontent upon you. He's going to make your life miserable, in other words. But it's a favor that he's doing to you to make your life miserable. Have you ever thought of that? It's so hard. Especially when it's someone that we love and we see it happening to them. When we see them making bad decision after bad decision after bad decision... And then we see them as unhappy as anybody could possibly be. As loving, kind, and compassionate people, we want to intervene. You know, we want to make it better for them. But God's saying, you keep your nose out of it. I'm working on them right now. And God is doing everything he can to get their attention so that they'll come back to him. But they haven't lost the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that's within them that's convicting them of the sin in the first place. Back into 1 Samuel chapter 16. Verses 16 through 23. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you. Let them seek a man who is a skillful player on the harp, and it shall come about when the evil spirit from God is upon you, that he shall play the harp with his hand, and you will be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Do you see David working any of this out at all? No. This is God working this out. Provide for me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. Then one of the young men answered and said, Behold, I have seen a son of Jesse from Bethlehem who is a skillful musician, 
a man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech, and a handsome man, and the Lord is with him. That's a pretty good resume. This is providential. God is providentially causing this unnamed person in Saul's court to raise his hand and say, I know somebody like that. I've heard of this guy. He's down in Bethlehem. He's a mighty warrior. Now, David's only 16 years old at this time, maybe 17. Apparently, this reputation about the bear and the lion had preceded him. I got to tell you, if I had killed a bear and a lion with my bare hands, you'd know about it. <laughs> I, I, would put, I would put up posters telling you I did it. Now, I'm, not, I'm sure David didn't do that, but the word had to get around. If you're a bear or a lion, don't go down and try to get one of this guy's sheep. All the little bears and lions probably talking to each other. So don't go down there. This guy's going to rip you up with just his bare hands, maybe a club, maybe a staff, whatever. The point is that his reputation preceded him. I think this is an interesting thing. He was a, man, a mighty man of valor, a warrior, one prudent in speech. I've got to tell you this. Some people are so bothered by this, that this man says he's a mighty man of valor, he's a warrior, that they think these chapters are out of order. There's no evidence that the chapters are out, out of order at all. David was considered to be a mighty man before he ever fought Goliath. He's not going to fight him in his own energy, but it's not like we see with our children's material sometimes. You see, sometimes it looks like the kid's five or six years old, and he's out there with a slingshot, and he's looking up at Goliath like this. Now, David may have been looking up at Goliath like that because David's probably, I don't know, 5'8", five, 5'9", five, 5'10", five, at the most, if he was normal at that time, typical average. And he's going to be looking up. But David's not a little kid. He's already killed a lion and a bear. So he is a mighty man of valor. He's also a handsome man. David wasn't chosen because of his looks. Samuel made that clear, that man looks upon the outward appearance. God looks upon the inward appearance. But it didn't mean that David was homely. It just meant that what was inside David was more important than what was outside of David. And the Lord was with him. We've seen all the way through Genesis that this is a very special phrase. It's not a throw-in phrase. This means that the Lord is with David, not just in a uh, omnipresent way, but in a very special way, a way of blessing. Verse 19. So Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the flock. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread and a jug of wine and a young goat and sent them to Saul by David his son. The distance that he goes from Jerusalem or from Bethlehem up to Gibeah, where Saul's headquarters would have been, would have been approximately nine miles. It's approximately five miles from where David was in Bethlehem to what will later be called Jerusalem. And then it's four miles from what will later be called Jerusalem up to Gibeah. It's not a long way. Jesse, David's father, acquiesces to the command of the king. In verse 21, then David came to Saul and attended him. And Saul loved him greatly and became his armor bearer. This does not mean that David became his bodyguard. That would be a misunderstanding. So if your translations say that, that's not what that means. It, it's an honorary position. He became someone that is very close to him. Later, there's going to be a great contrast. Later, Saul is going to hate David. He's going to chase him down. He's going to do everything he can to kill him because he looks at him as a threat. It didn't start off that way. Just like Jonathan and David loved each other, in the beginning, Saul loved David with the same description, with a very great love. Saul's attitude is going to change. But initially, he loves him. 
he apparently appoints him as his armor bearer because he's got a reputation as courage, but also because he's ministering to him. In some way, David playing this pleasant music to Saul when he was being tormented was therapeutic. We have people in our church that have studied music therapy, how to take care of certain psychological problems by certain combinations of of music. I don't think rap's one of them, but I'll have to ask them, but but I'm, I'm quite certain I have an idea what some of the combinations might be. We know some colors are therapeutic. I knew someone one time that her job was to be, she was an interior designer for hospitals. And there are many, many psychological studies on certain colors that are more healing, more calming than other colors. And so she would go and act as a consultant to very large hospital systems about what colors they should put in. You can tell all these things are carefully chosen to be therapeutic. We know it can happen with colors. We also know it can happen with music. And the harp is a very pleasant instrument. My daughter has a song. When she played the piano, she had a piece that she played. She didn't write it, but she arranged it in a very special way. And I used to think of this passage, and sometimes when I come home having a hard day, I say, hey, Marsha, would you play the song for me? And since she is Marsha, she said, oh, of course, Daddy, but I'll play it for you. She'd hop right up, she'd go to the piano, and I'd sit on the couch and just listen to her play that piece. And I got to tell you, by the time she was finished playing the piece, I was much more relaxed than when she started. That particular combination of notes for me and for my nervous system was very therapeutic. So it looks as though that's what's happening with Saul. He's got an evil spirit tormenting him, but David is playing the harp. But can that be all that's happening? Probably not. Because if it's God that has sent this spirit of discontent, you think somebody just coming and playing the banjo is going to get it out of there? No. I don't think so either. Or the harp or the piano or the violin or whatever it may be. I think God's providentially working here too to make that therapy effective. Back in verse 21 again, then David came to Saul and attended him or We could understand that as ministered to him. Literally, it stood before him, but that's an idiom for ministered to him, and became his armor bearer. And Saul said to Jesse, saying, Let David now stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. So it came about, whenever the evil spirit from God came to Saul, David would take the harp and play it with his hand, and Saul would be refreshed and and would be well, and the evil spirit would depart from him. Now watch, if God sent that spirit of discontent, it must have been God that was taking it away. There's no third party that could come in and just play an instrument and have that happen. All this is part of the providence of God. Now, the text doesn't say it explicitly, but it implies it implicitly that what happens is after the spirit of discontent leaves Saul, David travels back down to Bethlehem over this period of time and tends his father's sheep. When we get to the next lesson, we're going to see Saul really doesn't, who is this David guy? It's almost like he doesn't even recognize him when he comes to fight Goliath. It's probably been a couple of years. David has matured at that time, and you know how people can grow and change in appearance even in a couple of years during that age time. So it's not like he's with him in the court permanently. He comes and he goes, and he comes and goes when he's needed. This is the providence of God. God was elevating David from the ranks of a shepherd of the sheep to become the shepherd of his people. 
and his musical ability enabled him to lead the Israelites in worship later. This is just a preview of coming attractions. God is providentially putting David in this position. So the account that we study tonight, 1 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14 through 23, emphasizes the providence of God at work in the life of David. There is no indication at all in this text that David's pulling any of these strings. God is the one that's engineering this. David didn't seek the position as king of Israel. He didn't seek a position in Saul's court. He didn't seek to have a reputation, but he had one. God chose him. It was providential. It is certainly providential that this unnamed person just pulls David's name out of all the people in Israel to come up and minister to Saul, to bring him up into that position, to bring him to where he's in that circle of people to begin with. It's God who engineered this entire situation. Thank you.